Today's sermon text is from John chapter 19, verses 16b through 27. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place they called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers have crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is the word of the Lord. You all sound amazing this morning. It sounds the best when you're up front. You have all the voices proclaiming God's truth into your ears. I know there's not enough seats in front, but you should all try it out sometime. Let's pray and ask that God would settle our hearts in all that he's provided for us. God, sometimes we... We experience difficult things in life. People give us hard truths. The curse of this world comes crashing in on us, and it feels hopeless, lost, or discouraged. But we can know because of stories like this that John tells us that what seemed to be the darkest hour in history was the most glorious, triumphal victory obtained by Christ for his people. Help us enter into this world as conquerors in him, trusting that he will provide when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness that he bought for us by his blood. Amen. Children don't really know what's best for themselves. That's why they have parents. God gave them parents. If, if kids were in charge of running homes, as we see often throughout our culture, they would be poorly dressed, malnourished, inadequately educated, sterilized even, and just altogether unloved. Parenting requires upsetting your children sometimes, telling them no. And when they don't know what's best for themselves, they will complain 
and argue and whine and pout when their parents give them what's best. Oftentimes, what's good for us is not the most immediately satisfying. A sugary, giant sugary piece of cake with extra frosting will definitely delight the taste buds immediately, but in an hour, it will lead to an upset stomach. And a diet full of cake will definitely cause vital functions of the body to fail you in the long run. Their little palates yet aren't refined enough to appreciate the subtle, varying depths of flavors in a plate full of meats and fruits and vegetables. But that is the thing that will satisfy their hunger and strengthen their vital systems the best. Even after time, if this is the diet given them, they'll adjust to find those flavors most satisfying, more robust than the sugar bombs they once craved. Or when a child is sick, the parent will give them some kind of medicine to help temper the, the symptoms and maybe fight the illness. But everybody knows that medicine is not the most pleasant experience. Cold and flu medicines taste like syrupy bleach. Getting a, a shot, an injection, hurts when that needle breaks the skin and the medicine goes goes in, disinfectant in a wound, feels like you're further ripping the skin apart. But in the long term, these things are intended to bring health and stability back to the body. Likewise, heavenly medicine and nutrition, the kind that we really need, is what Christ our King provides for us in his death on the cross. We read these gruesome details in this painful moment in history, and it, it hurts, it saddens us, and yet at the same time, it's God's provision to bring us eternal health and vitality. Through this seemingly tragic ascension to the throne of his cross, Jesus, we actually see Jesus, the exalted king, providing for his people. He's the good and gracious ruler of the universe, and as such, the exalted king provides for his people. So we'll see in verses 16 to 22, we'll watch the, the king ascend to his throne and defeat our greatest enemy, that old serpent. He's delivering the medicine to us that infects our hearts. And then in verses 23 to 27, the king provides for his people. He gives the shirt off of his own back to cover his people and to place them in a family. The, that medicine may taste bitter to us as it goes down, but it is the antidote to our disease. It's the vegetables he offers for strength that might not immediately be appealing, but their nourishment provides health for our lives. And over time, as many of us have come to find, its flavors are actually the most satisfying as God's healthy sustenance from the exalted king who provides for his people. So let's see how he first delivers this necessary medicine to us in verses 16 through 22 as our king ascends to his throne. Read these with me again. Halfway through verse 16. So, after the trial, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross 
to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. As we read this story, it's important to remember how John is, co is constructing his gospel account. He's not simply just reporting bare facts to give us the, the detailed circumstances of what happened. He wants us to see how the, the details of the scene are fulfilling scripture, all of these promises and hopes from scriptural history in order that people will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John tells us in verse 17, an important detail, that Jesus was carrying his own cross. Other gospel accounts, though, tell us that Simon of Cyrene was commanded to help carry the cross. So what is John doing here? He's not really contradicting historical detail, he's trying to make a theological point. John's point is saying that Jesus carried his own cross to emphasize that he alone is bearing the sin of the world. All of our sins placed on him, and he's bearing the cross voluntarily. It's his cross to bear. Even though it looks like the Romans, the priests have forced this thing upon him, it's his to pick up, his to carry, his to climb upon and die. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down, he said in chapter 10, of his own accord. But even more than that, we see in this statement that he is engaging a battle that belongs to him alone. Not just a battle with the Romans or the chief priests, even with your own sin. This is a battle with the great serpent from the garden all the way back in the beginning. The original wrestle that Jesus came to win. John tells us that Jesus carried the cross to a place called Golgotha. He says it's the place of a skull. The word Golgotha is related to a Hebrew word that means skull. But why is this hill that he's crucified on called the skull place? Many people today believe that the, that hill has some rock outcropping on it that sort of, if you stand at the right angle, you can see a skull face. But that doesn't really make sense. That's not how John thinks. That's not how we've seen him construct arguments. There must be something more. Even throughout history, all the theologians in Scripture and since have, have looked deeper into Scripture than just geological features. Names of people and places told us who they were, what their identity was, how they fit in God's own story of redemptive history. The name Golgotha is meant to draw us together with some ideas that would start lighting up the Jewish mind. Ah, 
It's meant to bring to display, bring into our minds this display of victory over an enemy. In ancient times, when a warrior would defeat an enemy king or the champion of the enemy army, if he defeated him, he would cut off his head and carry that head back to his home as a victory trophy. Look, our God is more powerful than their mightiest of men. We see that in 1 Chronicles. Chapter 10, verse 10, the Philistines defeat King Saul in battle and they cut off his head and they take it back to the temple of Dagon and they nail that, that skull, same word, the skull to the temple so that they can proclaim Dagon has power over the Israelite warrior king. Even before that though, we see a similar thing happen when Another great warrior lost his head as a trophy to Yahweh's victory on behalf of the Israelites. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, the anointed King David defeats a giant and cuts off his head and brings it back to Jerusalem as a trophy of Yahweh's victory over their enemies. Now, he wouldn't bring that severed head inside the city because that would, that would be corrupting, profaning the city and the people in it, the place where God was supposed to live. So he would put it on display outside of the city. And that giant, his name was Goliath of Gath. The name Golgotha should bring together all these ideas that of Israel's king defeating an impossible enemy, cutting off his head as a trophy of their victory. But if we slow down even more, thinking about this familiar story of David and Goliath, we realize Samuel's writing with all kinds of theological vision too, not just bare facts. So when Samuel describes this fearsome giant, Goliath, he describes it with very serpent-like words. He says, the giant has a helmet of bronze, a spear on his back that's made of bronze. And that word bronze sounds just like the word for serpent in Hebrew. He's got a, a coat of mail all over him. That's his armor. But the word for mail sounds like is the word for scales. This giant is a scaly serpent that is coming after God's people. This battle between David and Goliath is a battle between God's king and the ancient serpent, which was promised back in Genesis 3.15. God guaranteed that the seed of the woman would defeat, crush the head the seed of the seed of the serpent. And that promised man would also receive a strike on his heel. A lesser blow. It might seem like, like the serpent gained some victory, a significant blow, but it will not be permanent. It will appear, as verse 18 says, that our Redeemer has been defeated. He's hanging in the middle of criminals. He's dying with criminals. How could this be? But it was to fulfill prophecies in Psalm 22, verse 16, Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he would be surrounded by evildoers, numbered among transgressors. Even just as David defeats the great giant Goliath, 
Throughout his story, we see that he is constantly treated like an enemy by his own king, by his own people, even by his own family, rejected. It always looks like the crushing defeat of God's anointed king. But the story keeps going, telling us God, through this, is working to provide greater victory for the whole world. That's what Christ is accomplishing here on his ascension to the throne of his cross. He's taking on that identity of a condemned king to redeem the whole world. John draws attention to that theme by telling us Pilate wrote an inscription above his head saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now we don't think that immediately means the whole world. But in verse 19, we find out then after verse 19 that he wrote that in many different languages. Jesus is the king of the Jews, as we have seen. He's the rightful son of David, the heir to the throne. Pilate doesn't care about fulfilling all this prophecy. He's just trying to get back at the Jews, twisting that knife a little bit more, mocking them. You may have forced me, forced my hand, but I'm going to do what you wanted in a way that makes me look strong and you look weak. But we know God can even speak through donkeys. So he can speak through prideful Roman governors. And we see John say in verse 20 that they crucified him outside the city along this busy road, wrote his, this inscription in multiple languages. He wrote it in, in the, language of the, the common language of the Jews the official language of the Roman Empire, and the common language of all the Roman populace. Certainly, Pilate's goal was simply to make everybody aware, you do not cross Rome. If you even pretend to be a king, you will die. But in God's providence, it turned out to be a declaration of Jesus' kingship over the entire world. By writing it in the world's languages, he was saying, Jesus, the king of the Jews, for the whole world, over the whole world, for all people. The Jews hated it. They wanted to get rid of it. Change that, they demanded. He's the king of the Jews, Pilate said. I'm not changing it. He says, what is written is written. I have written it down. Let it be so. Recently, John has really picked up on this language of fulfillment of what has been written, pointing us back to history in the Bible, all the, the scriptural fulfillment. But here he's saying, showing us God is even using the Roman governor to fulfill what is written. All the world watching King Jesus rise to his throne on this cross, The king crushes the head of the serpent, defeats your sin, fulfills all scripture, and rules over the world. Well, what does it look like for Jesus to be ruling over the world? We don't like the idea of a king here in America. We got rid of our king 250 years ago, praise God. And now we're getting rid of our other king, the one that should rule over us. Many people just see the idea of, his, of a king as really oppressive. 
They, a king is someone who just enjoys a lavish life off of unjust taxes stolen from the people. He gives his decrees, creating laws and giving judgments based on the whims of how, what he ate for lunch. But that's not the kind of king Jesus is. Let's look at verses 23 to 27 and see how this king provides for his people. John tells us, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So according to common Roman practice, there was a team of four soldiers there who carried out the crucifixion. And it was, it was their right, they were free to take the clothing from the condemned criminals and keep it as their own, as spoils for their effort. John tells us that they took off all of Jesus' clothes and they began to divide it among themselves. You can have his sandals, you get his belt, I get his tunic, you get his head covering, just splitting it all up. But then they came to this tunic. What do we do with this tunic? That's his undershirt. Just the undergarments that he wore under all those other things. It was kind of a shirt that went down probably to his knees. And it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. Seamless. If you've ever had rough seams inside your clothes rubbing against your skin, you know how nice seamless undergarments feel. This is, ooh feels good. This is expensive stuff. It takes skill to make something like this. So the soldiers are like, let's not rip this apart. This is really fancy. Let's just cast lots, like throw dice, draw straws to decide who gets to have it. No sense ripping it up. But why would John tell us this? This is really weird. Well, he does tell us it was to fulfill Psalm 22 verse 18. A thousand years before Jesus died, Here's David writing this song about his sufferings as a king, but he writes it in such explicit detail that tells us how the promised Messiah is going to die. Jake's going to come back to Psalm 22 in the next couple of weeks. But what strikes me is of all the detail in Psalm 22 that you could talk about, why this? Why the detail of his clothing? Remember, John is trying to draw us into a theological vision of what Jesus is accomplishing. We saw that with Golgotha and the serpent's head. What, what might he be saying here? Well, he's reminding us of how Jesus' death provides covering for his people. He takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness. Just like his clothes are stripped off from him, leaving him utterly vulnerable naked, exposed, he puts his clothes on other people who now get to walk around and wear his covering. 
Paul wrote of this kind of exchange in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This theological statement of this big exchange. Someone told me this morning, a swip swap. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness. In a few more chapters, in chapter 8, verse 9, he writes in more relatable terms. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. How poor did Jesus become for you? He gave up the last shirt on his back for you so that you might be rich, adorned in splendor, wearing the garments of the great high priest. Now, these aren't just any clothes. These are the coverings of the high priest. This note that John puts in there spends a little extra time saying it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. The only other time in the Bible where we hear about this kind of intricate weaving is back in Exodus where Moses is telling us the instructions from God on how to make the priest's robes, the priest's garments. It takes not just anybody with a needle and a thread can make this special kind of garment. It takes a person of great godly wisdom and skill. And the great high priest, his garment on the outside would wear this thing called an ephod. And it was all woven together as from one piece of fabric. Josephus would write about this years after Jesus, saying that using the same word John uses, that the priest was covered in a garment that was seamless. The priest's garments were kind of like a tabernacle in reverse, worn inside out. You know what the tabernacle is? That tent where God would dwell in the middle, in the holiest place. And then there were layers of holiness to protect the people on the outside because they were unholy. That allowed God to dwell in their midst. But sometimes a priest had to go into the temple. So how would he be protected? Well, he would wear a tabernacle in reverse, where the inside was unholy and the outer layers became more holy, protecting him as he walked into God's presence. What's interesting here, though, is that Jesus was already holy on the inside. So his inner garment, his undergarments, were the seamless, holy robes, the holiest part. And yet, he's voluntarily removing them to put them onto sinners so we could wear his holiness. This is such a common theme throughout the New Testament, wearing Christ's holiness. Romans 13 tells us, put on, clothe yourself with the armor of light. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 24 says to put on, clothe yourself with the new self created after the likeness of God. He says again in Colossians 3, 12, he exhorts the church to put on, clothe yourself with Christ-like humility and behaviors as the Lord has forgiven you. All these things are pointing us back to the beginning one more time. In Genesis 3.21, what happens after Adam and Eve sin and they, they're humbled under the curse? God provides for them clothing. Genesis 3.21 says, Yahweh, God, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Greek word in the Septuagint 
Here in Genesis 21, for garment is the same word that John uses here for tunic. John, Jesus gave his tunic as the skin of the true lamb of God to cover our sins. And then it's pointing us all the way to the end in Revelation 19, where John stands in heaven and he looks with this vision and he sees this great multitude at this giant celebration, splendorous before God. They're a beautiful bride, pleasing in God's sight. And John writes, it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Jesus gave his fine garments for you to wear as your own and be pleasing in his sight. But more than just giving you a garment and sending you on your way, the king clothes you and puts you in his family to make sure you arrive at that glorious day unstained, fit for that celebration. Verses 25 and 20 to 27 start with this contrast between four women and the four soldiers. The soldiers treated Jesus as common, but the women recognized him as holy. The soldiers boast over his death, but the women weep over their loss. The soldiers were distant from Jesus. The women drew near. It's not the literal clothes these women want. They want to be covered by him. They need him to care for them. They thought he was going to be their king, and now he's gone. They're they're exposed. They're vulnerable without him. Just like Adam and Eve, they're naked and ashamed in the garden after their sin. These women feel exposed without Jesus. In this time, women needed a provider just to stay alive. If their provider died, that meant death for them. Men owned property. And then they pass it on to their sons. And so a woman needed to be connected to her father and then married to a husband to provide. And if those weren't there, hopefully she had a son who could provide for her just to live. And these women had given up all those things to trust Jesus to provide for them as their king. And now he's gone. But even in his final breaths, Jesus cares for his mother. He turns to her and to his disciple John and he tells them, now you are to act as mother and son. Catholics like to interpret this saying, see, Mary is the mother of the church and we should give her adoration as the caretaker, as the one who takes care of us. But that's not how Mary would have understood that. She knows she needs to be taken care of. She's given up everything. She needs a provider. And so Jesus gives her John, who, it says, from that hour, in verse 27, took her into his own home. God has always had a special heart for orphans and widows. And Jesus expresses that heart right to the end of his own life. It's not just, the covering isn't just symbolic. It's very practical. He gives you a family to care for you. This scene reminds us what he has said previously in his own ministry. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Say, truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come. To follow Jesus means you have forsaken all your own ways, all the comforts you know. You've taken off the stained garment of your old life and you put on the righteousness of Christ and you immerse yourself into his family. And by this, you know that you, you can be certain that you will arrive on that beautiful, glorious wedding day of the Lamb because you have his righteousness covering you and you have his family walking with you to the end. So the big question for everyone today from this text is simply, have you received King Jesus' provisions and put them on? Do you wear them as your own? There's a lot of professing Christians in this world who are walking through this life carrying his clothes under their arms, but they don't actually put them on. They keep it in their back pocket as a good luck charm, a talisman, just in case I might need it if life gets difficult. They get defensive when they're called out for still wearing their stained garments. They might hold up Jesus' clothes as a defense. They know Jesus is powerful against sin. Hey, I got Jesus. Leave me alone. But they're not wearing his righteousness as a complete covering. What you wear says a lot about what you believe. This isn't intended to be a message about modesty. That's for another time. But clothing is a good picture for what it looks like to follow Jesus. What you wear declares who you are. If you're wearing an orange jumpsuit, it's safe for me to assume you are a prison inmate. If you're wearing a Minnesota Timberwolves basketball jersey standing on the court at Target Center with the rest of the team, it's safe for me to assume you're a professional basketball player. If you're wearing scrubs in this city, I think I can assume you work in some medical profession. If you're wearing a police uniform driving a squad car around, I can see that you are an officer of the law. Do you live in such a way that people can look at you as simply as looking at your clothing and say, that person's wearing Jesus, covered in Jesus. That's a Christian. That person's whole identity is Jesus. Stop carrying Jesus' garments around under your arm and put them on. Or you'll be one of those people who says, walks up to him in the final day saying, Lord, Lord, look, I got your garments. Found them. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You're no different than the soldiers who stole them from me. You're deceiving yourself. Jesus is the king who defeated sin and crushed the head of the serpent. You don't carry him around as a helpful tool. You surrender to him and put on the uniform, boldly, joyfully declaring you belong to him. And just as an orphan needs more than some clothes, you need a family that's going to go along with you and carry you along and pick you up sometimes and rebuke you when you're going the wrong way. 
If you've been around Redemption City Church very long, you know we emphasize strongly membership. Josiah is going to join us in membership, and we're all going to stand up and affirm him in membership today. And it's not because we're legalists who like to put more rules on you, but we see here in the Bible, in stories like this, Jesus providing for his people by surrounding them with a committed family. We're born into this world under the authority of a negligent father called Satan. And Jesus bought us with his blood to give us a new, much better father and to place you in the family's father, which we call the church. And if you have put on the clothing, the garments of holiness in Christ, then that new nature, your new identity wants to be around these people. You want to gather with them and worship with them and learn with them and grow with them and care for them and play with them and grieve with them and celebrate with them. You'll want to say publicly, formally, these are my people. Right here, you are my family. When Paul told the Colossians, clothe yourself in Jesus, he said, it looks like a faithful, committed life with a church family. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Well, where do you want us to exercise those attitudes, Paul? Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. You do all of this humility stuff in the one another's of a committed church family. If you're a new believer, you have just put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been informally hanging around a, a local church family, then make your clothing of righteousness and your identity with his people clear by formally, formally joining a church through baptism, coming out of the water, covered in dripping water like you're covered in Christ. And join in public membership, putting the team jersey on. This is how God has ordained for you to grow, to grow more righteous, mature, so you can wear the armor of light he provides for you. Sometimes it might seem like bitter medicine. You want me to join these people? Yes. But after some time, it will become the most satisfying meal, bringing health to your soul, because this is how the exalted king provides for his people. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Redemption City Church. I love this family. They have stuck with me through many trials. They have called me to get back up off my face to clothe myself more in your holiness. They have encouraged me by becoming more faithful themselves. God, your spirit is clearly at work in these brothers and sisters, and I pray you would help us stick together and endure until Jesus returns. God, help us stick together and represent his reign over this earth as we remain unified and we preach and we go out into this world and serve and love and build. We build families. We build farms and we work in our businesses. We change diapers. We pray with one another and study your word together. We weep together. In all these things, we declare 
Jesus reigns. He has crushed the head of the serpent. And we are now conquerors in him. We thank you, God, that your spirit is at work because of the blood of Jesus. Amen.